Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Dr. Ruby Gibson. She's the author of this book, My Body, My Earth, The Practice of Somatic Archaeology. And for people who don't understand what that is, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into defining that. Uh, Ru- uh, Ruby, you're also the executive director of the Freedom Lodge, and you offer historical trauma recovery treatments. Dr. Ruby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah. And, and where are you in the world right now? I'm in Colorado. Colorado, right. Um, well, yeah, it's a great pleasure to have you here. And perhaps for our audience, you could give a little bit of your, your backstory. Uh, yeah, and just uh, tell us where you come from. Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm living here right now in Denver, Colorado, and um, but our nonprofit organization is in Rapid City, South Dakota. So about seven years ago, I got um, our nonprofit got funded to do work with tribal organizations uh, because there's so much historical trauma in that. Um, in our communities and in these areas. So we were funded to provide historical trauma recovery and trainings uh, to uh, tribal members um, in Canada and in the United States. So First Nations and, uh, you know, we work with a lot of different indigenous people and um, we've made a big impact. It's been um, quite a seven seven year stretch, and we have um, uh, changed a lot of people's lives for the better, and uh, created some really dynamic conversations. Because when I first came to um, uh, Rapid City in South Dakota, we have nine reservations in that state. And so we decided to start visiting all of those reservations and speaking to the communities. And everyone was like, what's historical trauma? What are you talking about? You know, they didn't really have an idea uh, about it. Um, We have a a woman named Maria, uh, Dr. Maria Braveheart, and she uh, initiated some of the initial work on um, historical trauma recovery or historical trauma as a as a maybe a diagnosis but she's um she's a very um wise woman so she kind of paved the way in our indigenous communities for having this conversation and it's been it's been really amazing just to see um, you know, we consider that our body is like a walking library and it's full of so much information. And typically we think about it, you know, we analyze what's going on with us and we try and make a decision there. But we're engaged in bringing up memories, bringing up patterns, bringing up um, feelings that maybe have been buried a long time. So it's um, somatic archaeology is much like excavating the body. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we find great things and sometimes we find stressful things 
but we understand that it's it's like a um, an, an archaeological dig. What's on the surface is really just most recent. But as you get through layers of stress that are managing those memories, you're able to access deeper inside of you. And um, for me, doing this work with myself for probably about 35, 40 years, I had cleared so much um, history from my body and the way that I was managing stress, the way that I had learned to be, but who I really was. And I was able to finally come to, to, oh, this is who I am when all that other stuff is gone. And that was, for me, the gift that I wanted to give people. Oh, I've known since I was 13 that I was going to be a healer. And my life has had its own journey. Um, <laughs> I've just followed along. And um, I'm happy and honored to carry this gift of somatic archaeology that's been given to me and that we share freely with our Indigenous communities. Right. So take me back to, to you as a 13-year-old. Yeah. What was that moment when you, you knew you were going to be a healer? Um, well, there was one specific moment. I, I used to ride my horse to work, and I was riding back from work on my horse. And um, there was, we, we hit a meadow, and there was a deer in the meadow. This was single deer. And the horse stopped and looked at the deer, and the deer looked up. And clear as day said to me, please don't eat us. It's not your way. And I said, I just like got it. And I was like, okay. So from that day forward, it's been 50 years now. I have not eaten a piece of meat because it was my first relationship with spirit. It was knowing that I could hear and see, that I could change, that I could honor that. And I wanted to honor it. It seemed 100% right for me. So I went home and I said, Mom, I'm not eating meat anymore. And she said, okay, well, that's fine. I'll leave the meatballs out of your spaghetti. You know, <laughs> a great mom. And, uh, and yeah, and I raised all my kids that way. So lifestyle choices certainly are are important um and i have three four children and uh raised them all they're all doing excellent and really my work started after my children graduated <laughs> you know i i spent a lot of time studying on my own just Whatever I was interested in, I tried traditional college. It just didn't work for me. I was bored out of my mind. I wanted to be in circles and ceremony. Um, you know, I had um, many, many um, colleagues, shaman colleagues, um, good energy handlers, people who were, um, you know, had a lot to share. And... Um, I, I followed 
I followed that. And, you know, before I knew it, I, I had just really mad healing skills. It, it was already inside of me. I just needed someone to help bring it forward and uh, kind of bring it out of the recesses of me. And uh, she showed up and there she was. And so I went and I got a, um, the first thing I did was get a certificate as a licensed massage therapist. I figured I, I just wanted to have anatomy, physiology. I wanted to know all about the body. And after that, I spent years doing kind of physical, you know, body massage and working with chiropractors and doctors. And, and uh, I got really good at it. I had a thriving practice. But then I noticed that every person that I worked on, they would experience relief and then they would come back the next week with the same issue. And I was like, well, what's happening? So we began this process of feeling into the pain and describing it. Mm -hmm. What that does is it brings us into the sensation. And since our body doesn't have a voice, its voice is sensation, right? So it communicates in that way. So when we're able to tune into those sensory perceptions that most of us avoid or, you know, don't pay attention to, you know, when you're able to drop in there, a whole world opens up to you. And, um, you know, this is, this is the way that I look at it. And this might be kind of a big picture for your audience, but if we um, say, if this is me right here in this moment, I have seven generations behind me, all influencing who I am. And I am going to have an influence on the next seven generations. So we stand at this apex between 14 generations. Every human being does. What are you accountable to in that system? Well, in our native com communities and cultures, you know, we believe that we're responsible for seven generations. So not only is our great, 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 great grandfather, you know, our seventh grandfather, everything that he did all along that way, his life, and then the subsequent influence he had on his descendants come into me. And I, and I then get to sort out, what am I going to carry? What am I going to keep? What am I going to throw away? What is old? What is new? And, you know, then I'm recognizing that everything I do and say and create is going to influence the next seven generations. So it might seem like a big idea that we are influencing them, but it's true. And we are responsible for our actions and how that plays out in, you know, over the next seven generations. So it's, uh, we get to a position where we're, we can feel our power, our potential to create change, and um, how that's going to impact um, our future, um, our children, our communities. Hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it, on one level, that's overwhelming. And then on another level, it's it makes total sense, right? That, and that's from my own experiences. I, I am the vessel of all of those experiences and traumas down to me. And I've got kids now and I, I can absolutely see, at least in the first generation now, yeah, I, I'm passing um, yeah, my own experience and who I am you know, onto the next generation. Uh, well, you, you know, biologic, we're not just talking spiritually because we're talking biologically too. So a woman is born with all the eggs she'll ever have, whereas a man produces sperm every day, right? So when my mother was in her mother's womb or my grandmother's womb, I was already there because when my mother was born, the little egg of me pre-existed. Mm. So all mammals are incubated in the maternal grandmother's womb. And when we recognize that, we know that everything she did has an influence on how she lived, how she treated others, how she was treated, how what brought her joy, what was her creativity? What was her anguish? Did she have loss? Did she, you know, all of those things become who we are. And most of the time we think, oh, this is the way it is. This is the hand I got dealt. You know, I'm just going to have to deal with it. But that isn't the case because each of us is a powerful spiritual being. And we can say, yeah, I might want to carry this or maybe not. I, <laughs> I have a good story that would probably be a little clearer. I was um, in Denver. We have this big amphitheater called Red Rocks Amphitheater. And a lot of big acts come and play there. It's a beautiful outside venue. And um, Carlos Santana was playing. And his wife was in the middle of publishing or she was promoting a book that she was publishing called In Between the Stars because her father was a star and her husband's star. And, you know, so she had written this book and they were doing a promotional thing with, um, you know, lots of cameras and news stations and stuff like that. So she got up and she spoke a little. And, and you know, my kids and I, our family, we were, I just wanted to see her, you know, I wanted to hear what she was doing. And so we went in there, but we were the only ones that weren't press. In, in mm. And then Carlos and his wife walk in and they sit down right next to me. It's like, right. Yeah. <laughs> it was really interesting. She went up and she talked and then she invited her husband up and Carlos sauntered up. I can still see him sauntering up to the podium. And he said, um, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my wife. And he gave her lots of accolades and things like that. And, and he said, but, but I do have one question. He says, you know, my wife, every time she bakes a ham, she bakes it in this little pan. And I told her, honey, we can afford a bigger pan. <laughs> you don't need to do that. She said, well, that's the way that my mama did it. And that's the way that my grandmama did it. And so that's the way I do it. And he said, oh, 
hmm, well, let's go talk to grandma about that. So they went over to grandma's house. Grandma, how come you make your hams in this tiny little pan? She said, oh, because when I was young, we didn't have any money and it was the only pan I had. (laughs) Carla said, I think it's about time that we rethink what we're carrying and how we're carrying it. He said, maybe there's some things that have become tradition that are based on poverty or racism or fear or anger, you know, and he's and I was just like, I, you know, it was like one of the first times I had heard a celebrity <laughs> mention this. I got grabbed my camera out to go take a picture of him and. Yeah, his bodyguards took me down. (laughs) It was a priceless moment to just hear that. Yeah, some things that have become traditional. Is it tradition or is it survival? Mm -hmm. And that's what we end up primarily dealing with is survival stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the archaeology is is to sort that out. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so, you, you described the moment on on the on your horse, and you see the deer, and that's when you, I guess, you first realised you had some connection. Um, and and when did I, you first? Uh, sorry, come. I, I I didn't know that I had a connection. I. It was just happening to me. I didn't yeah. really have someone to explain it to me. Right, but there was you had that ex- that experience. When Many. did you first? Sorry, go on. Many experiences. <laughs> <laughs> like you had many, but that was the first one you could recall, or at least one that was powerful at that time. Mm-hmm. And wh- when did you first start to engage in this archaeology, like you yourself? Well. Like I said, when people would come in my office, I would ask them to feel deeper into into their tissue, into sensation, into what they were managing. And irregardless of the problem, the issue, the pain, or whatever condition that person had, I recognized that everyone was going through uh, the same five steps. And I just started to write them down and notice, you know. And from that came the five steps of somatic archaeology. It was actually done over a number of years in practice, just working with clients and patients who were... um, very trusting of me and willing to to go those places because they experienced such um, profound results. Like a a woman who had um, a, a stress syndrome that was affecting her adrenals and was causing her a lot of problems. We um, took somatic archaeology and explored her endocrine system. And we, we probably did one session a week for two years. 
it took her that long to let go of all the stress in her body so that she could actually find herself and normalize her life. You know, the ways in which the body manages stress is just amazing. I mean, we're able to endure so much, but we can't always process it. So that's where this comes in. This isn't for the person who's in immediate crisis. It's for someone who wants to go deeper, who wants to look for the roots. So, yeah. and in, in any archaeological dig, you know, you're, you're dusting off things carefully and looking at them and you're really taking, putting the puzzle back together of your life, of your ancestors' lives. And you learn a lot about yourself and, you know, about the, the gifts that are inherent. Because a lot of times stress doesn't allow room for our creativity, doesn't allow room for normalization, for healthy relationships, and certainly isn't good for our body. So, you know, just in relieving that, it solves a whole bunch of other problems. You know, it's um, it's pretty fascinating. Each person has their own journey. So the, you want me just can I say the five steps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, so the first step is I notice. I notice everything that's going on in my life. I notice what's happening around me. I notice my relationships. I notice where stuff is difficult, where things are uh feeling um, optimistic, you know, we just look at everything. And then we identify one place that they want to focus on. And um, so we're, I wish I had, we put everything, let me just preempt this. In our tradition, we, um, in Lakota tradition, we have a um, thing called the medicine wheel. And the medicine wheel is really the oldest symbol of all time. And it has, you know, it's a compass, north, east, southwest. It's also can be a timekeeper. It can be many, many things. Um, but in this case, it balances out um, certain medicine. So we know we have four worlds, and those four worlds are um, air, fire, water, and earth, right? Then we also know we have spirit, mind, body, emotion. So we arrange everything on the medicine wheel. And if it makes medicine, if it works, then we use it. So I took this whole model, these five steps, and I put them on the medicine wheel. And that's what I'm describing to you now, okay? So when we're in the center of the wheel, it's, you know, the, the kind of focal point, you know, what's happening, what's going on. Okay. Where do you feel it in your body? I feel it right here. Okay. Let's go to step two. I sense. So it's, I notice, I sense. And we move to the west of the wheel. The west of the wheel is where the rock and stone people live. It's also, um, a solid physical, you know, so we're going into our physical body. 
What do you notice when you go to that place where you feel this sensation associated with this memory or with this pain? And describe it to me. Describe me that sensation so I can feel it in my body. And then they begin to describe um, what they're feeling. We might take it deeper, take it a little deeper, get more refined in the um, process. We use a lot of resourcing. <clears throat> Breathe, ground, settle. <sighs> Just keeping someone in a, in a state where they can process, you know, in a healthy way. So we, we just go very slow, um, especially in the first few sessions. So you go from I notice to I sense, and then your body releases this information that's in the library of you. And that information, the third step is I feel. So I notice, I sense, I feel. Now we're at the south of the wheel where it's emotions in the plant world. And so we use the plant world in order to amplify our emotions. And um, it, we might, you know, we might use essential oils. We might use um, sage or some traditional um, smudging. But for, for the most part, it will happen organically on its own. That when someone notices and they sense deep enough, emotion will come out of that. It might be anger, it might be grief, it might be confusion, but something will move. And as that, those tears or whatever expresses itself, then the fourth step is I interpret. So I notice, I sense, I feel, and we go straight up the wheel to the north, which is the place of the mind of um, the animal world, that are our mascots and, you know, kind of define um, st structure and social structure to us. So we come up and we're like, oh, that's the reason I've been carrying this. I see. We start to change our perspective about what we're carrying and what we know about it. And as that memory kind of diffuses, like a light bulb moment, solves a deep issue inside the person takes a couple more like resourcing breaths and the last step notice i sense i feel i interpret we're going to the east of the wheel now and it's i reconcile reconciliation is something like well who are you when you're free who are you when you're not carrying this burden? And then that person is able to move into the frontal lobes of their brain and be able to vision forward because that's the most important thing is if we're letting go of something, that we call something else in that's within our power to visualize and manifest. And then once we have that, then we come back to the center of the wheel to, I notice, what do you notice now? Well, I notice I'm a lot more relaxed or I notice that um, 
I have deeper work that I want to do here, or I notice that I feel free or whatever it is, you know? And then that's one session of somatic archaeology. Yeah. 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 That resonates. Yeah. So we don't want to say, I notice I interpret. Right. Because the transformative part is the feeling and the sensing. That's where we change. And if we aren't willing to go through that process, we're probably not going to change. I mean, right. we have to become more emotionally intelligent to recognize how much emotion we have inside of us and how we're managing it. Um, because associated with every every disease, every condition, every pain, every memory, there is an emotion connected to it. Yeah. And we bring it up, the emotion comes with it. And that's where we really learn about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And and why do you think it is that so many of us jump from notice to interpret and don't and don't take a full tour of the wheel? <laughs> the most common psychotherapeutic model that we have. And, you know, it's, it's uh, in the culture we live in today. It's how work is done. But in the world I live in, that's not um, an option. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we, we want to change lives. We're we have on the Pine Ridge Reservation, which is right near where our offices are, the average age of life is 49. Um, life expectancy. Um, we have lots of alcohol and drug use. Um, high, high, extremely high rates of youth suicide. We have um, lots of cancer, diabetes, and um, heart issues. And, you know, the, the communities are, I mean, COVID hit us hard. So the communities are just really struggling to deal with all the loss and the death, which is at the roots of the historical trauma anyway. So it's kind of like a revisiting in, you know, in a, a less violent way, but it's, um, you know, there's a lot of cycles. So, so we, our goal is just one person healthy at a time. We train counselors, um, therapists from across the United States who then go back to their community and provide somatic archaeology and our historical trauma model. And um, we have people come to our center. But our primary thing is training and presentations because we've been at this a long, long time. I mean, yeah. I've been at it for 50 years and um, it, nobody was really interested Right. I, I tried. I knocked on a lot of doors. People just looked at me like I was crazy. Now it's just um, we're getting so much interest that it's um, it's a bit overwhelming, but 
I'm glad, you know, we, we've worked hard to reach this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, um, yeah. I mean, it's awesome. I think, I think, I think we I do feel like we're in a shift where there's an opening now to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I'd say this is an Englishman. <laughs> if we're starting to talk about our emotions, then there's hope. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, I will be teaching in the UK. Um, I'll be teaching at um, UK Brainspotting or Brainspotting UK. And, um, and then I'm also doing a, teaching a somatic experiencing group in May. I'll be in, in the UK. So anyone who's, right. who's interested in, in if you have those credentials and you want to study, it's um, freedomlodge.org is where all our right. information is. If, if you want to take it to the next step or come attend a class or anything. But um, uh, we are in the process of researching and evaluating somatic archaeology so it can become a best practice because we've helped thousands and thousands of people and trained hundreds and hundreds of people and we want it to have a life. The, my life has been <laughs> this. And, you know, when I cross over, I want to pass this on. It's, for me, a big giveaway. But I'm just a carrier of a medicine, and I'm honored to be that. But mm. you know, we have other people who will take it forward and hope it has a long life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm interesting just to, to bring this to life for our audience, like, what can you recall like a time when you you personally have been through this this cycle and and what it is that you got to feel and 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 and, and your reconciliation at the end of this like i'm just just interested in in your own personal experience with this mm -hmm. well <laughs> um it was a little rough start in our family um my um, mother and father had four children and then they got divorced. And uh, we were living out on the East Coast. And then my mother remarried and moved us, they moved us to Colorado. I was so happy <laughs> for that move. But it, it there, my father died of alcoholism. Um, he was uh, a heavy addict and um, when I was in my 30s, I was massaging my mom and she said, oh, by the way, did you know your dad's adopted? <laughs> like, no. And for me, that's like vital information, right? So then I had to rethink everything because I thought my grandparents were my grandparents. I thought my lineage was this lineage and it wasn't. And so um, I think Part of my desire was that I felt confused mm. between, you know, just a lot of choices of my parents. And so, you know, we, we did the, the best with it. I have a big loving family. So, you know, my mom's amazing. But there was all of this kind of shrouded information. So. Um, when I found that out, I went to a, uh, my brother and I went to a, uh, social services cause 
Well, here, I'll just explain it. My great-grandfather came home from World War I and died of syphilis. His wife, and he had a two-year-old daughter, she, the, the mother, the, the wife, she, when he died, she went crazy with grief. And she was arrested for drunkenness and lewdness and put in Sherborne Prison, which is in Boston. And she got put into a prison run by a female warden. And this warden was famous because of her tactic. And her tactics were this. When you go into her prison, your life no longer exists. You have no history you have nothing behind you. You have to let it all go. Your only job is to serve the people around you. And, you know, if we think back in the 30s, you know, 40s, I mean, that was the kind of prisons that women went to and white women didn't go in those prisons. So, you know, my, my grandmother, though, was put in there. And so their two-year-old daughter became a ward of the state. And that's my grandmother. And um, she got pregnant um, at a young age and they wanted to know who that scoundrel was who got her pregnant. We still don't know um, who he is. And by the time I got there, my grandmother had already passed on. And um, we went to this place in Boston and on the third floor of this old dusty brick building were files on past social service um, kids. And there was a file this thick on my grandmother and they copied it for $50, gave it to me. And so I got to see all her handwritten notes, like all these things about her that I could have never, ever known. And, you know, for me, left with that kind of curiosity and lies because the people who adopted my father were ashamed they couldn't have give birth or have a baby. So they, they lied about the birth. They made up a story about the pregnancy and the delivery and they never told my dad that he was adopted. And then um, the mother of my dad, my grandmother, she, she didn't really have any, um, any desire either. So my dad was kind of abandoned. And when he went to, um, into the Navy, when he was 17, they said, there's a problem with your birth certificate. So he then had to find out and he got so mad. He was just so angry. He had been lied to his whole life because he never felt right about it. And, and then that's when the alcoholism started. So, you know, there is a lot of lies and mysteries and confusion just all around his side of the family. And then my mom's side was just really powerful and clear and, you know, ha had really strong lines and ancestors. 
So I was like half a mystery, (laughs) you know, half not. And I wanted to solve that mystery. So that just gives, tells you, you know, where I was coming from. And I was kind of like, I'm not going to leave any stone unturned. I want the whole story and that it's got to be inside of me because I can't find it outside. It's in here. So I spent a lot of time kind of calling forth, like not only doing my own personal work about relationships or, you know, little aches and pains I had in my body. Um, you know, it was, it, it became more deliberate around calling forth those ancestors. And I know that you and I have had a little bit of conversation about our spirituality in this process, but, you know, for, for me, um, being able to call all that back and actually start to have conversations with my ancestors where I felt like we were connected and they were responding on a whole other different dimension um, you know, my uh, spiritual skills began to grow and change, and um, I began to go deeper and deeper. And I, I studied um, a lot of different things. By the time I made my way to college, they said, um, you've already completed your master's degree. I did it on my own and I didn't even know I was doing it. I was just passionate, right? So they gave me a master's degree and and, uh, convinced me to go into my doctorate work, which was all about somatic archaeology. And um, my dissertation came up very well. And that's why we're doing more research because, because there's a strong validity to this. So we're taking a very complex problem and simplifying it based on natural structures, the elements of the world, the the balance, the harmony of the wheel. And, you know, there's a trust when you go into that, that your system is going to be corrective, that it's going to know how to solve these problems because no one else knew how to solve these problems for me. I had to solve them and I had to go back to my body to get more information over and over again so that what I was interpreting was completely different than, than, you know, just a story. It was like, I think I've probably gone back one, two, Um, I had a very strong um, memory associated with someone who was four generations removed from me. It's a grandmother. And and that was just really very powerful. So I feel more intact. We talk a lot about belonging. I feel like I belong to myself. I belong to my lineage. They belong to me. And we're all working toward the same goal. So, you know, there's a harmony that happens. And then you feel like you can, you know, open up your world. Uh, it's, not, it's not easy to, 
develop something, create it, you know, develop, put it in a book. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I couldn't even really tell you how I got here. It's just been a series of miraculous things. Right. And, and I owe that to the work I did on myself because I cleared any barrier out of the way that I felt was a barrier. Right. All of it. And when, you know, when I knew when I was ready, when there was nothing in my way, I could do anything I wanted. I, I had, uh, I had reached that point and, um, and then the blessings came. Yeah. Well, what and they comes came for nonprofit. That's a good place. <laughs> yeah. And what comes to me as you, you speak and you talk about this in the story is, is the warrior, the warrior archetype, right? You were going to, you were going to leave no stern on tone, no stone unturned. And, and what's interesting about your story that there's no limit to how far back you were prepared to go. And I think about my own story, I've done enormous amount of archaeology on my own childhood. And it feels like as you're speaking to me now, perhaps the next phase for me is to start to look back at, at further generations and what am I holding, not just from my own childhood, but from you know, my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents and, and so on. Um, and, it, and it comes through in the sense I get from you of rootedness, right? That's the word that's forming in my mind as I experience you is, is rootedness. Yeah, rootedness in your lineage. And um, yeah, I'm, in, I'm inspired by that thought that we can connect, right? You, you just mentioned it. You feel like you've had conversations with, uh, with uh, people, you know, from, 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 from way back. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, the process of somatic archaeology, the steps, you know, sensing is really done in our reptilian brain, in our base brain, because it's, it's just basic survival. And, and when you move to I sense, I'm mean, sorry, when you move to I feel, the energy, we, we have like a bottom-up neurophysiological process. So rather than thinking our way down, we feel our way up, right? So um, uh, that physiological process will then take you into the amygdala, and that's where all those emotions get triggered. And then it takes you to the neocortex, which is where we interpret and that final step I reconcile is where we move to the frontal lobes, to our third eye, to our hypothalamus and pineal and, you know, our power glands there. And, and we can begin to see, to visualize um, others. You know, it like unlocks the door that keeps us from being able to recognize the unseen world. And that's where my work is taking me, is I can see the unseen world every day. Yeah. So. And, and try to ex explain to us what you mean by the unseen world. Things that aren't in 3D form. People, animals, um, structures, 
I mean, everything that's taken up a place has a residue, mm-hmm. right? So you can find your way into residue, much like an old temple or an old church or an old Mayan ruin. You know, those, those places still have structure. They still have power. So it just depends what you want to know and where you want to go with yourself, you know, so for me, I realized, oh, this is going to take, this is, this is my life. <laughs> this is what I do. This is who I am. So here we are, you know, and, uh, and uh, I live and breathe it. It's, um, it's been, it's been an amazing, amazing journey. Yeah. And the way I'm interpreting this is it, it's, it's transitioning from healing to, to spiritual development, to, to beyond like resolution, but actually into developing um, yeah, extraordinary powers or abilities. Well, is it really extraordinary? Let's, let's really simplify it. Just we'll do this quickly. It, typically, as humans, we have about 20% of decision-making power in our life and creator has about 80%. And that's to give us a little bit of learning, but not, you know, but protection. Someone's watching over us. Well, as we become more accountable to the things that have happened to us or, you know, like um, being able to, reconcile a certain number of things or what do they say in AA, you know, forgive, uh, for, to correct, to, you know, reconcile with people, you know, Make whatever. Huh? Make amends. Uh, Make amends. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, so there's, there certainly is all of that that happens first, and when, when you take accountability for yourself, you get a little more power. So maybe now it's 30, 70. And you recognize, ah, the choices that you're making are, are, you know, wiser. And, you know, the creator is kind of letting you out on the line a little more. You know, it's like, <laughs> I manage all that. Anyway. There are, um, the more that you are engaged in this process of the recognition of the big picture and your sense of belonging to it and your capacity to change it, you just done creator's work. Now you're at 80 and creator's at 20. (laughs) That's what's possible. And that's what happened to me. Right. I'm getting it. Yeah. And so all those blessings, I'm like the, like the vessel, you know, and, uh, and we share fairly wisely, deeply and connectedly with whoever we come into contact with, because we're so honored myself and Cara Big Crow, who is our director and, you know, we have a great staff and um, people who are really committed to this work. And so we, we have fun. We play. We, you know, 
all about dreaming. What's next? What should we do now? Right. <laughs> and yeah, you, you've got to, you created a space that you can play in through all of this work, right? That's what I'm getting. Exactly. Exactly. That, that 80%, right? You, you, you're giving yourself a level of freedom. Well, I didn't really create or did, but I mean, it's just, I didn't know that was what I was doing, right? It just happened as a, and, and the animal world has also been so dominant in my life as to my teachers. So, you know, there's a lot of shape-shifting and different things that go on in those dimensions. Well, that's, well, that's fascinating. Like, tell me, tell me a way in which an animal or animals have taught you. Well, the deer certainly yeah. has been one of my totems. Um, birds. Birds are, I don't, I don't know, I'm very or, oriented around birds. Mm, they oh. just, my medicine name is Nighthawk Woman. And um, I was given that medicine name uh, by a Micmac elder. And he gave me that name because he said I had the ability to fly into the darkness and retrieve people back into the light. So um, Nighthawk is just, you know, she's my <laughs> kind of my animal spirit. So um, I, I don't know. This is, it's just, it's such a long conversation and a deep, personal one but i don't know i'm kind of hesitating going any further with it but yeah no i i sense that i'm just of course i'm intrigued mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i'd love to well it's just it's it's it, this is all sort of yeah this is new right this isn't something i you know from my sort of worldview i don't i don't think about what can i learn from animals um so it's it's a good challenge it's like okay that's interesting. Um, well, I mean, I enjoy being nature, but I enjoy being nature, but I'm never kind of meditating on what, what could I learn from this animal right now I'm encountering or, yeah, so we have a new orientation. We have a plant world, an animal world, a human world, and a rock world or physical. Mineral, I'm sorry. Mineral, human, animal, and plant. That's all there is. There's just four. <laughs> so it's not like it's a lot to choose from. So when you are out there, just recognize that you belong to that place. You're standing there. Your spirit belongs where you stand. And to be full of the experience of that place. You know, it's not like you have to stretch yourself. All you have to do is expand and belong. And, and as you do that, those um, the teachers of the earth will come and they will, you know, they'll show you your way. I mean, if we can't change our own relationship with Mother Earth, how are we going to change the relationship we're having with her on a 
you know, on this toxic level. I mean, we need to do some things, but we need to be in tune and pay attention. It's like if your mother was dying, what would you do? You'd go talk to her and be with her and yeah, yeah. nourish her and care for her. That's what we do. Yeah. That's the only thing left to do. Right. And this is, uh, yeah, this is such an important message. And, and it, yeah, I have this, uh, this reaction back to the environmental mo- movement, which, which, which seems so, at least the sort of Western version of it that we see in our media, which is, seems so disconnected from what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems so abstract. And the message seems to be, you know, do this and do that and stop doing this and stop doing that. It's never go out and connect with nature and ask what of yourself what nature can teach you. Like this isn't the message, at least as I interpret it, of the you know modern environmental movement. And it's not like I want to have a rant against it, but it's just I notice that. Uh, and when I hear your message, it it just it resonates at a, a much, you know, a much deeper level. Imagine that Mother Earth has a heart. And that heart is right in the center of her body. And that heart is beating. It's the bright red magma at her core. If you can listen for that and align your heartbeat to her rhythm, That's all you need to do. Be connected. Because it's all rhythm, right? Like a drumbeat. And that's why I wake up every day. Am I connected? Yeah, okay. Now we can move forward. It's, it becomes the alternative to survival stress. Because her survival is our survival, right? If we don't pay attention to that, if we don't nourish her like we want to be nourished by her, you know, it's just. You know, I I guess it's just a different way to live. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a mountain girl, so yeah, I'm just <laughs> well, you used to get to work riding a horse, right? You're, you had yeah. a head start. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 Whatever it is that draws you. I mean, I'm just saying, like that's to me basic 101. You know, when you were in your mother's womb, what was your rhythm? It was yeah. your mother's heartbeat. Well, not now you're on grandmother earth's womb and guess what she has a mother and a grandmother too and a grandfather yeah they're not very happy (laughs) with how we're treating their granddaughter so yeah (laughs) we could do her lineage and go from there but yeah and just being playful but yeah yeah no but i get i I mean I, i do get it and it's, it's, I'm taking my kids canoeing for like a two nights camping and we're going to be like relatively in nature. It's sort of as close to like raw nature as you could get in my part of the world. But I'm really going to take this conversation with me. Like, 
you know, make some space to surrender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, teach them young. I taught my kids young. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fabulous. Okay, well, uh, thank you. Yeah. You're so welcome. It's been really pleasant speaking with you. Yeah, it's been um, a gentle challenge. I've really enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, great. And and so you mentioned... um, Freedom Lodge, but that's one place people can go, um, you know, see what you have to offer. You, you said you're coming to England, which, yeah. is, which is awesome. Yeah, so you can go to um, freedomlodge.org to get more information. Um, we also have a website, mybodymybreath.org, and there's, we develop a lot of generational healing tools um breathing cards books i mean all sorts of things to support people who are working in this field in the transgenerational recovery field so um they can go to that website and look there too for more information my body my breath pretty soon i'll be coming out with (laughs) rubygibson.com that's still in the work so um but yeah, I'll be in your neck of the woods in May. And brilliant. Well, if you do, you know which city you're coming. Is it London you're coming to? Or okay, yeah. well, we'd love it if we can. Uh, I've read your coffee. That would be awesome. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Good. Um, all right. Well, wonderful. Um, we'll put all the links to that. And um, yeah, thank you once again. Welcome. I wish you many blessings and much honor in your life. Thank you. And, and to you. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I wish you many blessings in the work you're doing with the communities in, in South Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. <laughs> Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.